This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts, while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to contentmultiplied.com today. That's contentmultiplied.com. Thanks, Smyla, and uh, let's go into the show. are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffrath. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Giselle Martin-Odom, investor at Unreasonable Group. After a career as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, Giselle transitioned towards social impact and has been an impact investor since 2020. He's responsible for deal flow for the Unreasonable Collective, and we'll speak about what that exactly is and how you can benefit uh, from the Unreasonable Collective as an entrepreneur, which is a group of diverse leaders and entrepreneurs investing in impact-driven startups. He has a deep passion for supporting underestimated founders who are solving the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And it's great to have you on the show to share some advice with uh, founders from the Impact Hustlers community and with the audience of the podcast. So excited to have you. Thanks for joining, Giselle. Of course, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. Amazing. Thanks for your time. Um, so let's start with giving people a bit of a background of yourself. Um, what's been your journey? You spent quite a bit of time as an investment banker, but what has been the transition from, from that into VC or just the story of wanting to be a VC investor and wanting to invest in impact even start earlier than that? Tell us, tell us how you got here. Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. I think, um, so I was born and raised, for anybody who's listening, I was born and raised in Ghana. I moved to the U.S. for college and did my master's at NYU in social impact investments and innovation. So it was at that point where I got to be part of the student investment managers for NYU's inaugural impact investment fund, um, which was like through a class, uh, a course I was taking. And that's kind of what got me on the, on the course of thinking about how to formalize this concept of leveraging capital and driving to founders who are trying to change the world. Um, and after grad school, however, I made a decision to take a job 
um, with the with the one the leading boss bracket banks um, in London, uh, India Industrial MA Group. So I sat, I sat in a globalized investment um, MA group for a few years, covering broadly global, global business services, a European building, and construction businesses. However, for me, the ultimate goal had always been to get back to work, directed capital into early and growth stage ventures. So after a few years, I would go inside. I, I made that transition, um, making a conscious day to move into the impact space. I joined a reasonable group um, as a portfolio manager for UK and EMEA. And that's what began my transition into now working on Collective as the senior, as a senior investment um, associate um, directly responsible for sourcing, due diligence, and executing deals. Perfect. We'll speak about the collective in a second. But first of all, uh, can you give us a bit of a background of Unreasonable Group? Um, and before we do that, actually, for anybody that wants to listen in more detail on what Unreasonable does, we actually do have a podcast episode at Impact Hustlers with Daniel Epstein, the founder. So you may want to check back to that as well. But uh, in, in, in your words, Giselle, uh, what does Unreasonable do? What's the, how do you operate as a bigger group of company? Absolutely. It's in Michael, you're right. Uh, Daniel definitely does a way better job explaining what we do on Unreasonable. But just, I think for me, um, I like to think of us as impact accelerators. Uh, so we, we partner with corporate partners like Barclays, Accenture to develop, um, impact accelerator programs across certain themes. And then through that program, we induct, um, various companies, growth stage companies, um, that are often some of the most diverse cohorts of people focused on solving some of the world's biggest problems like climate, food insecurity, um, education, uh, the future of work. And so what we post that yeah, involvement in our program to get inducted into our portfolio companies. And that's when my role, my former role came in where I supported uh, ventures with both fundraising support, so thinking through how to connect them to capital as they are going through their fundraising uh, rounds, and then equally as important, thinking through how to support them operationally, right? Thinking through how to connect them to mentors, to to people who could help expand their impact further and faster. So for me, I like to think of unreasonable as as an ecosystem, as an ecosystem creator, um, trying to make um, create an ecosystem that can support a portfolio of companies' um, impact and help them scale further and faster. And the companies you support are pretty much global, isn't it? Uh, the, I think Unreasonable Absolutely. is based uh, mainly in the US and in, in London. There's a few people. Uh, you're usually based in Ghana, as far as I know, right? Uh, but also yes, kind of coming exactly. in and out of London. So yeah. um, uh, is there any restrictions to the type of companies you're investing in as Unreasonable? For sure, for sure. So, so, so it's a bit different. So as part of um, our work in the Unreasonable group as a whole in our accelerator program. We have a very um talented global venture selection team. So for a reasonable portfolio companies, um you don't you cannot apply to be a part of it. So our venture selection team are very good about looking for the best companies that that are focused on the different impact themes that we are covering at a time. Um how so as, as part of all this work in trying to build an ecosystem support around entrepreneurs, we spun out um a year ago our pledge fund called a reasonable collective. So Reasonable Collective is a network-powered VC that gathers like-minded LPs who are focused on channeling not just capital, but also support to growth stage entrepreneurs. So we're looking at companies from the pre-Series A to about the Series B stages, uh, broadly covering climate, built environments, mobility and translation, and food and agriculture. And then what, what is, I think, our secret source is that not only are we looking to direct capital 
into these companies as, as minority investors, but even more importantly, because of our member base of individual LPs, we're able to create modules of engagement with that LP base to ensure that the different needs of our portfolio companies are identified and we can continue to expand this unreasonable um, hypothesis, which is that if we create an ecosystem of support around companies that are looking to do good and do well, they'll be able uh, to, to expand their impact. That's not what we offer within the collective um, in, investment group. Mm-hmm. And 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 then the collective, the name already shows it. That is actually a, a, quite a, a, a group of of angel investors, of entrepreneurs, of leaders. Who are these people that are backing the collective and that are investing with you into into impact driven companies? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have quite a broad range of people, everywhere from high net worth individuals to to influencers. Um, our, our IC is chaired by by some very well-known names in the investment space. Um, our board chairman for our reasonable Christina Musk is on our investment committee. Uh, we have quite a broad range of about 150 plus um, ex-operators, um, ex-fund uh, managers, um, serial entrepreneurs, really a broad range of people who can both channel support across very uh, disparate places to support our portfolio company. Got it. Um, exciting. And uh, as I understand, the Unreasonable Collective is a bit more open to startups actually applying for investment. Is that right? How, how does it work? How do startups get in, in the funnel? Absolutely. We're always looking to um, meet exciting companies and and that are looking to raise um, capital within our our, our, our strategy. So I always tell folks I can share with, and Michael can put it in in the description after this. Always shoot me an email. My email is always open. It's a pretty great way as well to uh, reach out to me. I, I I might have a Twitter as well. You can reach me on Twitter. We're always open to looking at companies and and, and checking out which companies make sense for us. But yes, in terms of uh, area that we focus on, we we're pretty focused in the pre series A. So about series B. Um, we, we don't, we don't, um, we only follow on. So there has to be a lead investor in the round already. Um, and we are, we focus at broadly on climate, built environment, mobility and translation, food and that. Amazing. Great. Um, cool. Uh, that's, that's a really good introduction. Um, I've already, uh, uh, shared your email. Thanks for being that kind. Um, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as well for, for anybody that's uh, looking to get in touch with you. So, um, let's move it a bit towards, um, some lessons learned from the investor perspective. Um, you've been doing this for a while. You've, uh, you're seeing, um, I assume hundreds of startups regularly. Um, reviewing pitch decks all the time. So you have yeah. uh, quite a few insights on what good looks like and what you're looking for, obviously, as well. So um, maybe let's first start with um, things that you see startups do uh, when they pitch to you that you would suggest they avoid. What is like the uh, worst things that you see sometimes, mistakes they make, easy things that could be fixed to make a much better impression and to increase the likelihood of raising? Is there any uh, advice around that? Um, yes, for sure. I think, um, you know, there's a, we, there's a larger conversation that we have to have around like the ZC space and who gets, who gets to show, uh, deals to people. It's why, like, um, I, we don't only def- depend on referral deals. We're open, like I said, we're very open, um, inbound policy. But I think what, what normally helps to, I think what I've seen that is often helpful is like, if you can tell a very clear value proposition within, the pitch deck you're sharing with with the investors is always helpful. So if I can tell like what the problem is and how you're solving it specifically, 
it's very helpful since I get pitch decks and, and I read the whole thing and like, I have no clue what this company does. And there's like a lot of really great like market sizing, which is all very important, but it's also very much like what exactly the problem that you're solving, I think is one. I think for the impact hustler community, community as well, I think a lot of times I, I, I see um, pitch decks that come in the impact page, like maybe one in the deck. Um, but a lot of times I find the companies that have, have intertwined both impact and the business into the uh, pitch deck as a whole have very have thought about their business on a very holistic level. And so I, lo- I like to see that as well, especially look, trying to focus on companies that are, are solving some of the world's biggest problems. If it's clear that, that impact is an afterthought, but it's actually a part of the way you're doing business, that's always very good to see as well. Um, and I think for me, because we invest pre-Series A to our Series B, we like to see some traction. Um, and we don't have a hard and fast number, like a million. But I think for me, if you were to build something, there's a lot of like really great like incubators, pre-CC fund investors that are, that are available to help support like, you and think through your, your, your concept and really get some product market fit. It's where we sit in the pre-Series A, Series B space. We're really looking at companies that have some amount of revenue on the books. Um, and have a clear plan towards hitting um, about a million dollars ARR in the next couple of years. I think for us, be able to see that there's a plan in place, some traction on the ground. It's always very helpful because it, it can help you contextualize um, contextualize how, how to place the opportunity uh, within your portfolio. I think finally, um, a lot of times I think is I wish more people show the clear understanding of who their competitive landscape are, because I think a lot of times people are sending me a pitch deck is like one page of like, we're the best in this category. And, and that's like a very easy thing to, to massage with all metrics you look at, right? To be able to have a better competitive as I say, Hey, I've thought about this. This is why we say this unique space. I think it's a lot for, especially for a fund like ours, where we're, we're, we're only right to check between like 500 and $2 million. And so we have to be very clear on what deals we do and we do a, a deal every four or five weeks so we have to be we have we've seen a lot of pitch checking out a very short time to be able to tell how this company sits in the competitive landscape oftentimes will give me a will give us a, some more comfort to have a second conversation mm, that's a really good point i think um really um i think it's it's a bit of a running gag looking at these uh competitor slides sometimes in startup pitch decks and obviously uh the startup is always in the upper right corner and doing everything better than everybody else right um but uh, i think what yeah. you said there of uh, extracting like being honest and being like maybe this is where we have a risk or a weakness or where we're not as good at this company but this is how we're addressing it or this is why we're not focusing on this but on something else that gives like a true honest picture of of your company rather than something that looks like okay you're you're trying to be like you're, you're saying you're the best in everything but you're probably you're definitely not so uh, what's your focus and why are you focusing on that is is that a good summary of it exactly yeah exactly right and i think that and but i think also for especially for me and, and my specific focus on on on, on supporting underrepresented founders i think sometimes all these things are are may not maybe like a, a yellow flag but I more than often would have a conversation um, if, if, if it's within our strike zone generally, because sometimes also like, you know, things don't get up. I've had, I've had pitch decks that have been like, we're not strike zone, but haven't been too clear on, on, on the competitive landscape. After a conversation, I'm like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And it's a good reason why we should, we should think this through. So I think for me, it's, it's, I also, as an investor, um, I also keep my investment hat on to, to think about, um, Something, the thing that can get lost in translation, 
Um, and we're small, we're small team, so there's only four of us on my team, so we don't have a lot of bandwidth. So being able to 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 hunt to help understand um, what is interesting uh, and and get clarity on it really quickly is important for us. Anything that helps us do that um, is super helpful, especially if it's in, in an area where we already have comfort comfort within the the area. For example, like we've done some prior work in on the industry and the trend, so we're comfortable in that space. So now it 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 comes comes into how do we place the startup in the in this ecosystem that we were comfortable in. Got it. Uh, absolutely. And then if you look at like the startups that you have invested in, is there something that they have in common that they've done particularly well um, when they pitched for investment? Um, is there anything that is like a common good practice that founders can adapt? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the number one thing is clarity. I think um, so often I've sat in pitch deck meetings where it's gone up like an hour and, and it's just like going on and the founder hasn't really crafted a story. And I was reading something yesterday that would say that most most startups need to have a story. I think that's probably the biggest thing that when someone is pitching to me, be able to have, be able to in like the, the time we have, explain their value, prop, explain how they are solving it, how, why they are the best at it and why we should invest given even what might be the risk in the market. I think that's super important and very clear to where you can tell some a founder who has like taken the time to practice their, mm -hmm. their pitch, to understand their problem, who is clear on it, right? Because sometimes the problem might be super technical. Like let's say we're talking about lithium-ion batteries, for example, maybe super technical. Um, and you have to explain why your solution is better than everybody else in very specific terms. But being able to craft a story around that thing often helps as well because I will do my do my own due diligence and understand the technical part of the company for sure. And I, I want to I want to get comfortable that the founder has the technical know-how, but I also want to understand the story, right? Because eventually what we what I'm investing in is is their business model sure, is their business plan sure, but I'm really investing in the founder, right? I'm investing in the fact that like if if all of this doesn't pan out. Do we think this person continues to go? Because we're doing early stage stuff, right? So there's still a bit of risk for us. So it's less about. So it's, it's, it's very important to get like the metrics right, and then and then the, the valuation maps, all that fun stuff. But finally, it's clear on what they are offering, how they can get there, is often one of the big things for us, uh, for me personally. Mm. Got it. I think an, an, another thing that I see um, uh, is always great if a pitch deck is really created in a way that it's like really a trailer to a movie rather than the whole movie. I think I've seen like so many decks that try to cover everything and all the details and everything and the message gets lost. The story gets lost. It's confusing what you're actually even doing. You, you may try to include everything you're doing. But, uh, you know, the job of the initial deck, uh, anybody that's now after this podcast reaching out to you, sending you an email, the job is to capture your attention and to get you excited to have a meeting, right? Or to take the next step, whatever the investment process is and, and move on rather than wire a check straight away uh, after sending the deck. Uh, uh, would you agree with that as well? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Because I think uh, the, the right now, and I was listening to a really good podcast, um, And one 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 thing that gets us is that capital is a commodity, right? So like getting the money money into a startup is quite easy these days. Like the just the, the conversation I think founders should be thinking about is like, why am I pitching this story to this investor? Why is this person important for us? So for example, for collective, we are our unique value proposition that we can connect you to not only to 150 plus members who are who are investing in your company directly, 
but into the larger unreasonable network of, of about 300 portfolio, over 250 portfolio companies, over 500 um, investment awards, hundreds of mentors and networks. So we our value problems. We can connect you to so many resources to unlock different aspects of 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 your um, of your business and, and to help you scale up your your key, uh, your your business and the issues you're trying to solve. And so for so for as an investor, I always I often tell founders they're like. It's, it's a great conversation. Yes, I need money, X, Y, Z, but capital is commoditized. So now I think founders get to be able to take a second and think, why am I telling this story to this investor and how do they fit into the long-term plan of my product? Especially because as impact companies, right? You're looking to fix a, a problem in a sustainable way that's affecting people's lives. And so being able to start to think about the long-term in the beginning as a founder, I think is super necessary. There's a lot of people have written very great things about why founders should be more active in their investor selection. I think that's definitely something that's important as well. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, right now is the best time. You know, I think uh, there's like new funds starting all the time. Everybody wants to deploy capital. So, the um, you know, as much as maybe the macroeconomic situation is getting tougher and tougher, I think still there's so much capital for founders. Um, do you think there's any like framework or advice you would give to founders on how they should... Um, think about selecting the right funds. Obviously, if you're just starting out and you're raising funding initially in a position of like, oh God, I don't have, I have zero raised. I, I just need to take any money in. Um, but uh, I'm sure, you know, the best startups out there, they act a bit differently. They're much more strategic on which investors they select. Is there any framework, any kind of key things that founders should think about when selecting investors and who should they approach first straight the investor that they that their dream investor or how should they go about their fundraise absolutely absolutely that's a really good question i think i think the number one thing is is to wherever you are if you're like in pre-seed or like an idea stage or if you're like a series a and you're raising whoever you are i think it's always important to think about the story of the other company and i keep bringing back the story because like it really would impact like who you're thinking about getting reaching out to so for example if, you're, if your company's idea is, is a story that is looking to solve in a, in a very practical way but you don't think it's a it's a clear v but deals are size of vc story that's why you can't get it funded right there's so many other opportunities that you can get it funded Whereas if you have a story that's a more VC story, you probably don't want to be talking to family foundations really early because then your cap table has a lot of family foundations and people who may not have the skills to help you like scale up. So I think in the beginning, thinking about like what this business is, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to stay static. It might change, it might, but having some sort of North Star is always helpful. Um, and I think the second, as, as you're raising, I think the thing is looking beyond just like equity capital. Like I get so many people who, come to me, send me a pitch deck. They have like an MVP, maybe an idea. And they're like, I want $5 million in equity. And they could get $5 million in equity, but someone is going to take a lot of money of the company for that $5 million. Whereas I think there's a lot of opportunity, especially now in this climate, especially where we are now, where like this incubated accelerators, a lot of like pre-seed funds, seed stage funds that are looking to support you through um, idea stage, even to build out your product. A lot of like venture builders, Venture building um, uh, outfits out now. There's a lot of different, I think, resources now than there were like three, five years ago for people to really take different routes to raising or building out their products. There's people who are strapping their whole thing without capital. There's other people who are using the incubator accelerator routes. But I think as a founder, as you're starting out, um, the, the, the 
that the feeling might be to rush for the first VC capital to validate your product. You have to have VC money in, but it's less about the money and more about what you're building, especially as impact founders, you're looking to build something that lasts. So thinking through like, how do I get this? And I've seen a lot of ventures start out getting there's a really great R&D grants to build out their product and then be able to then leverage um, family offices and some more classic VCs in their seed round. And as they prove out their concept, continue to build out their VC story. There's, there's no right answer to that question is, is what I would say, but I do think that um, thinking that equity is end all be all is definitely, was definitely a flow. You should definitely allow yourself to look at what different ways you can, you can continue to gear risk and also not give up as much equity in your company so early um, as you're building it out. Uh, great advice, especially for impact companies. Is there any resources or ways of approaching this on uh, uh, kind of grant funding or any uh, alternative funding to VC investing? How would you suggest the founder goes about this finding finding those uh, grants or other funding options? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so the, the the great thing is in a lot of countries now. There's especially like in the Western world, there's a lot of like grant outfits out there. I know in the UK, for example, it's Innovate UK. Um, the Department of State does a lot of work. A lot of foundations do a lot of work um, in, in giving out grants. I think looking at the family office foundations, um, the nonprofit space, um, government agencies often are doing innovations. Um, universities are giving out grants. So there's a very quite a broad variety of places to get grants, and they all have to be science focused, right? So you might have a, a very science-focused idea, but impact investors, impact founders cut across the, the broad the, the, the wide, the broad spectrum. And I think there's a lot of funding out there that, that, that doesn't get tapped into, especially in the philanthropic space. That can de-risk your, your, your idea as you start out. There's also a lot of like grants that you can use to, in addition to your product, so you're not, you're not spending equity capital doing R&D, you can use some grants to buttress that. So there's a more than a few different um, places, but I think, um, in terms of like resources, if philanthropical funding is not my specialty, not my specialty, but there's a quite a few of my portfolio companies. Um, I've raised funds. I'm always happy to to think to and connect people to people who would have more to say on it. That's great. Um, let's talk a bit about the intersection of social and environmental impact and backing founders uh, from an underestimated background. Um, you know, uh, yeah. obviously, whenever, uh, you know, uh, I'm worldwide, basically, uh, there is a true problem in the VC industry of actually backing founders without looking at gender, at skin color, etc. So whenever you look, for example, there is an annual report from Atomico on the state of European tech uh Year by year, unfortunately, the metrics are quite depressing. Sometimes there's slight improvements, uh, but in terms of backing female founders, uh, I think depending on where you look at, it's like one, two, three percent of all VC funding goes to female founded companies. Um, if you look at founders, uh, minority founders, or um, um, uh, it's even less. Um, and um, yeah. it's been a problem in the VC industry for a bit. So that's why I love that you personally, but also Unreasonable Collective, ha really has the mission to fund um, underrepresented founders. I'd love to understand from you, obviously, it's an important problem to solve, and it's great that you're working on this. But is there uh, like a specific perspective you have on combining the social impact of the company, but then also funding underrepresented founders to solve these problem uh, problems? Uh, how do you think about the intersection of both? For sure. I mean, I think... I think how I like the easiest way I've ever heard it said is that 
underrepresented founders are solving real people's problems. I think that the issue in VCs is that it's a bigger microcosm of society where capital has, has continued to flow towards um, historically white males in, in, in startup and in, in the VC, which is, which is not different from most parts of, of, of life in general. But I think for, I think for us at Unreasonable, what makes us different is that we're making an intentional look for founders that are underrepresented. I think for a lot of VC funds, it's, it hides behind um, different things like we're a product first company, we care about their product, doesn't matter who is building it, but that allows people not to do the work of sourcing companies that are, because a lot of companies that are building products that are run by women, that are run by underrepresented that do not get funded. And you go to a classic big European VC funds website and you can, I did it today, and their first, and I went, I did a sample of their company and there was like no woman invested in, in their, in 30 of their companies. Um, there was like maybe three people of color that were, they were all men and they, but they are a product first investor, right? So like, you're like, yeah, we don't look at anybody, but it, it trends towards white men only that they fund. And I think that that is the issue that VC spaces that like too many people are not making this issue actually go out and source for this and make, make diversity as not just a, a nice to have, but they have to have. And for us in the collective, it's, it's very important. We have like metrics that we have to meet. And so for that, we have to bake in um, going out to have these conversations. It means for it means for me sometimes having two, three times long conversations because overall, as, as you mentioned, Atomico does a really great report, but it's, it's harder for people of color, for women to raise capital. So what that means is that like in the same amount of time it will take my regular SaaS company run, funded by a white man that's focused on impact to raise capital, it might take a woman of color twice the, twice the time to get to that point. So as an investor, I always focus on, on um, really driving capital into underrepresented founders. My job becomes following up and making sure that I'm like, hey, I know it's taking a bit longer, but my interest hasn't waned. We're still here. I'm so interested in this idea because understand that like when you pull back ecosystem itself, it needs fixing as an actor in the system. Uh, we we make a choice to actively be a part of it. I think that's the issue with with it. And they write all these beautiful reports about like yeah, we need to raise more money for women, more money and for people of color. But like no one is actively mandating themselves to do that. No one is saying that like hey, for my fund, if we don't have fifty, if we don't have fifty percent of the portfolio in the investment, we're not doing any more deals to the next ones. The people to all these more people of color. Like if we start to force people to have to go out and source companies outside of their networks, from their universities, from their clubs, and they have to go to a place where they wouldn't normally have friends, we'll find a lot of people are building really great businesses that are probably in the impact hustlers community that are not getting access to capital. And not every capital can service, can service every company, but I do think that like it's a bit of an anomaly that we continue to fund only com- com- primarily companies that are founded by straight white men. Just a really quick break from this episode to let you know a little bit more about our podcast producer and content agency, Content Multiplied. With all the moving pieces of a business, you can't be stuck managing and creating new content all the time. That's why I've started using Myla and her team at Content Multiplied. It's really an all-in-one content management and repurposing solution that can handle all your content needs. Visit them at contentmultiplied.com today. Contentmultiplied.com. Okay, let's get back to the episode. 
Love it. Uh, I have a few more questions on that, actually, but I just want to remind the audience that it's time for you to ask your questions as well. So you should see an option uh, here in the studio to actually request to get onto stage. Um, so if you do have a question, please do that. And I will. it will pop up here on my screen and we should be able to get you into the video call and uh, let you ask your question. So yeah, do ask your question. Don't be shy. We're here. Um, uh, that's why Giselle is here and that's why we're doing the live podcast. But uh, until we get the first few questions in um i would say i'll ask a few more on that because that topic specifically is close to my heart and i think what you just um mentioned is a is a really important one as well of as an investor being patient um with underestimated founders and not letting the bias of the ecosystem this be a wrong signal for you right so uh I did a podcast previously with Gary Stewart, who is the founder of Founded Tribes, um, which is a platform for underestimated founders, actually uh, also highly recommended for um, for uh, underestimated founders to raise funding through them. Um, but what he found, he actually really struggled to raise funding. And he's an experienced entrepreneur. He's exited the company before, and he still struggled to raise funding, especially in the UK. He found it much easier in the US. But um, if you looked at that and the time it took him to raise money, and uh, as an investor, you say, oh, he's he's very slow with raising his money. That must mean his company isn't great. No, this is the bias of the ecosystem um, speaking. And as an investor, your role is to not let that taint your picture and actually just look at the fundamentals of the company rather than is anybody else investing. It's like, is this a good company? Is it a good business model? What's the attraction? And all that stuff going back to those things. Um, I think probably one of the biggest evils um in in the vc space is sometimes like this hurt mentality like who else is investing you know it's like yeah, one of the big brands yeah. investing otherwise i'm not interested um uh, is that a good summary i think <laughs> yeah that's no, a great summary i mean Giselle, i mean yeah. it's uh it's a great summary i mean it's it, it's indicative of like exactly where we are right now in the vc space There's a really great article by um jerry i i can't remember her last name on vc enmeshment um, like it's on my Twitter, but um, she she writes a really great article around how much of, of, of VC had become super interlocked. And I think that is kind of where we sell these things is like everybody's hoping to see like some certain name on a company. And for me, one of the things I do not look at actually is who else is in the round. Like we're in minority investors. And so we need to follow the the, the, the terms of the lead. And so having a good lead on the board is helpful for us. But more before we get to that point, we make a decision based on whether or not the company itself and its merits is it's interesting, right? So like a great lead investor is, is a great, it's a great thing to look at. But so often in VCs, we have these like signals that we, that have, that are rooted in, 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 in the system. And so are, are rooted in prejudice, right? It's like you signal if a big VC invests in them, but big VCs are only investing in, in, in companies that are, do not have women or people of color. And so you assume that women people of color companies are not, are not interesting businesses. And that's why you see now. That's pretty. It's pretty known fact that emerging funders that are focused on on some of these um, underrepresented groups are, are turning re uh, returns higher than like a traditional funds, and and that's why a lot of funds are also rushing to the C stage space now because they're all looking for returns. And and to what uh, to that I say it all sounds great, but we need to start to build systems that are intentionally focused on as a as a metric, just as much as you look at your customer acquisition costs, just as much as you look at what kind of traction they have, we should include 
diversity in the space, a, a diversity of the team, who who is in the team. That should be an int- a metric for us to go out and find companies because we will find that it will force us to source in different places. And there's a really great companies on that are not on your big uh, VCs rated that are doing really amazing work. Amazing. Uh, we got a question from Joel, and Joel, I'll get you on stage now. Uh, and it's all about explaining the environmental problem versus the business opportunity when pitching to investors. And how did due diligence change? But Joel, I'll let you come on stage and ask the question straight away to Jaziel. So there we go. Um, uh, Joel, you're in Berlin, is that right? Uh, currently in San Francisco, actually, but usually based in, in Berlin. In San Francisco, nice. Yeah, so. yeah fund, fundraising nice. in process for Series A, actually, exactly. Um, hi, hi, Giselle. Oh, right, there we go. Yeah, you should talk uh, in more detail. But um, Joel is the founder of a company called Clean Hub. Uh, basically, they do what uh, other companies do with carbon offsetting for plastic, uh, for plastic that uh, can't be prevented. Uh, but Joel, I'll let you introduce yourself in more detail and then ask your question. Go ahead. Uh, thanks a lot for, for all the insights. Uh, really, really interesting. Um, and the the thing that <clears throat> um, I find find interesting now when when pitching, right? It's like we speak to impact VC, we speak to to classic VC. Um, is the awareness of the the environmental problem, or you know, in the end, we're working in waste management, which is an industry that not a lot of VC ever went into um, and where people don't have a very deep understanding of the industry. Well, if you build a B2B SaaS product, obviously it's much easier to say, like, look, we're building B2B SaaS for, I don't know, accounting and everybody immediately understands, okay, this is what's going on. Um, but finding the right balance between creating an understanding for the industry that we're active, what the problem is we're solving for that specific industry and then how we're making money. Um, that's, a lot of information and at the same time the the pitching time you have is no different from a b2b SaaS, right and um i i wanted to get your take on maybe what you've seen work well in pitches when when it comes to these things maybe also how founders can prepare you better um as an investor to understand an industry that is usually underrepresented by um by vc um what, what are your takes on that Absolutely, Joel. Thank you again um, for, for asking for the question. And I think you're exactly right. So first of all, we're actually right now closing a deal in the waste space, not in the ocean space, but in the waste management space broadly. And I, I get it and I understand it. And, uh, and love the, the waste problem isn't um, one that a lot of people can grasp the, the, the clear linkage to business case. Um, I think what, what I found has really been interesting is being able to show um, who cares about the business, about the issue, right? To be able to point to a VC, for example, I'm looking on your website now and you're, you're, you're saying you have the collection targets and then you reduce your, you have collection hubs. I think you, this is already, you've, I like the step-by-step approach. I think that the key then becomes like, we're helping keep our oceans clean and this is who, and this is how we can, if it's a, if it's a for-profit business, of course, this is how we can make money. And this is why we, this is the, why we think this problem is important to this to this guy enough to pay us this much. I think the the, the company I'm investing right now they made it very clear for us. It's like, hey, listen, our solution is easy to put into these people's systems. They care about margins. We reduce their margins by X percentages, and it's retrofitable across any of these platforms. And it's cost ninety percent less than what they already do right now. So like that makes me go, and then that makes me go, okay, interesting. 
But of course, we have the wage component, right? So then they tell me, and these are the key tailwinds why this is becoming a problem that it's going to have to be focused on, right? So if there's like legislation, if there is um, groundstone movement, things that you can prove that like, hey, listen, not only is this a good business case, but as an investor, it puts you on the forefront of an issue that's already going to be happening. Like we're already heading this way. Do you want to get on this, on this, on this, on this wagon because we can prove this business case for you? I think that's often for me makes me comfortable enough to then go and do my own due diligence to see if I agree with the estimation of what the problem is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Understood. Yeah, and then the the other part that I find interesting and somewhat maybe even worrying, right? It's like there's more and more companies now coming onto the market that says like we we want to do good for the environment and there's going to be massive amounts of money being put into these um, companies. And I was at a conference the other day where I spoke to to a VC that is new to the space and I asked them, it's like, how, how did your due diligence change for investing in companies like that? It's like, how do you make sure that this is actually also from an environmental perspective a, a, a good investment? It's like, we, di we didn't really change the, the due diligence, which I find to some degree uh, worrying um, because you could easily find a wrong solution that's going to or might even create more harm. Um, how, how do you approach due diligence with your fund like from a business perspective, but then also from an impact perspective? Yeah, for sure. I think I think for, from an impact perspective, it's, it's, it's important for us. So we're very much, as much as we're, we're trying to return on our, returns for our LP base. We're also very much focused on the, on the impact um, metrics. And so part of the very first thing is is be able to understand what the impact is, right? In a way that is measurable. And the way we have, like to measure it is, is we use the the US SDGs, be able to point something that's trackable that we can see is, you, know, you have a, a process to track this data and report this data in your business model, either as is or as part of your, your growth trajectory. Number one is important for us. That helps us understand that there's a, there's a system in place, right? But to get comfortable whether or not this this actually is a solution that, that solves it. One thing that we're learning is that we're not the smartest people in the room always. I think these are for a long time. I've always thought they're the smartest because they had the money. And for us, it's the opposite, right? Because we are building a network power VC as a whole. Sometimes I get on a call and it's about, just, I had a conversation recently about carbon sequestration, which is something I know a bit about, but I'm not, the, I'm not a, a genius on but one of our members in our network absolutely is brain on this. I reach out like, hey, can I have a conversation with you? Let me understand what makes sense. So like reach out to people who know more than us is I think is the more important part, especially the impact because what, what we're finding is that like we may have the capital, but more important than the capital, we have people who have experience that are not only helpful our due diligence, but more importantly, we do these companies because we want to make sure that we can support them post-investment, right? So be able to be okay. Mm. We know that for a fact that we have someone in our, in our group that that is good at understanding the the mechanics of waste sorting. And so, if we need to build some relation someone to other waste sorting facilities, we have someone who can potentially be interesting. And that for us, I think, is is, is how we is how we both de-risk it, but also put the founder first, right? Because we don't want to just put mm. capital and say, okay, yeah, go make us rich. More important because like what we really care about is mm. yeah, we should make money, but we care about the fact that. We're trying to solve a real problem. So how can we, after we mm. put capital in this, set, make sure that we have a group of people who can support this founder um, is something that's very important to us. Yeah. All right. That sounds super interesting. Uh, let's, if you want, definitely connect because I think what you're about to invest in sounds super interesting. 
Uh, amazing. Joel, if you like, you can even uh, ask one more question. Uh, but I also reminder to the audience, if you still want to ask questions, feel free to raise your hand and request to go on stage and we'll have time for one or two more questions. Uh, but Joel, if there's any other follow-up that uh, you'd like to ask, feel free to do that. Um, I think for now, for now I'm good. Uh, it would be great to, to chat and um, I'll just drop you a message. Absolutely, please do. Thank you so much. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. I'll see you soon. Great. Uh, thanks, Giselle, for, for sharing that. Um, uh, super interesting. And again, we're, we're still open for questions for anybody in the audience. Feel free to just request to go on stage. Um, you, you guys should definitely connect, by the way. Uh, Joel has been on the podcast a few episodes ago. It's a good one to check out as well. Nice, so nice. Um, always good to see previous podcast guests join in again. Uh, thanks for joining uh, during this busy time of raising. So, um, so maybe we can cover like uh, just a few more points and hints for um, founders um, that are currently fundraising and on an investment strategy, especially when you're talking, you need to talk to a lot of investors at the same time and you need to kind of hurt the cats almost in a way that um, you uh, line up the investors in a way that you can drive the timeline as a founder, make sure that you're closing your round in time. But at the same time, uh, it is quite a challenge, I think, from a founder perspective to manage the relationships of so many investors. Some investors are really slow to respond. They may require four or five meetings until they invest. Some are really quick and kind of almost, on, almost invest within two weeks very quickly uh, turn around um is there any advice you can share from a founder perspective how to best approach the fundraising process and line up the investors in a strategic way that then puts founders in a perspective that they're uh, they they are powerful they can negotiate they have different options and ideally get a few term sheets at the same time is there any advice around that yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that the very first advice is is one take an honest look at, at like the market that you're in, right? So for example, if you're in a B2B SaaS uh, business, you probably can find a hundred investors who will give you a call. If you're in a very specific field, it might take some time. So I also, what I often tell um founders is that um always start the fundraise before you need to close the round. So like I eight months, nine months before you you actually ready to open the round, start having conversations with your existing investors, right? Because that's a very that's the, it's a very good thing. It's a great help if you can continue to have your, your existing investors double down in your round. It's often very helpful. It helps you have to go out to raise less money, right? Which is less time you spend outside on the market. So start talking about your existing investors. And more importantly, like, um, let you be, let your network be activate, activate your networks, essentially, right? Like go out there and, and have, and have larger conversations. Um, with, with other people in the network that you're thinking about raising your fund, this kind of investors you're looking at. Um, and more importantly, also, like I mentioned earlier, um, clarify what your, what your, your story is, what your investment story is. And because that'll help you decide which kind of investors you're interested in, right? Because you want to make sure that you're not just, um, spraying, um, invite uh, to people who might not be a, for, a fit for you. For example, we don't do anything, um, pre seed, right? We, we rarely do seed. So like pre seed stuff or like pre idea stuff excuse me, um, will not be a fit for us, right? So to be able to have, um, do some, some of the work of figuring out like what, what round am I in? Who is interesting in this space? Thankfully, a lot of these days, love, there's a lot of like software and platforms out there um, that you can, you, that can give you access to figure out like who's raising what and who has how much money, et cetera. Um, but being able to start that conversation early, I think it's very important because you don't want to be like three months away from um, running out of money and then starting to raise. Because like you mentioned, some founders take 
three days, some founders take nine months, right? Um, depending on who they are and what their what what their story is. And so I would find that sometimes that like founders are are so focused on being operators. And so they they missed that 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 the inflection point to start to like have those conversations. As a founder, beyond building a business, also thinking looking forward and thinking through, okay, if we're gonna need money in twenty four months because we just raised that seed round, it means in about twelve months we should have start to have some reportable metrics to show that, hey, for this seed round, we, this is what we've done in traction. It might be interesting to know. And then maybe in about eighteen months, start to have some conversations with newer investors. That's to really prep the market. So by the time you go to market, people have seen your deck. People have had some conversations. And the second, I think, thing that's also important is um, having, a, having a data room that is already filled out makes it super, for me, makes it super easy for us to review the companies quickly. Um, so especially now in the virtual world, my team, half my team sits in New York. I sit in Accra, Ghana most days. My colleague sits in Nairobi. So we're a very distributed team. So we do everything asynchronously. Having a, having a data room that you can share with us and we, that we could share that after we view your 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 public facing deck and we like what we've heard so far, having a, a, a theorem that we can go in and start to dive in and start to build our own thesis around it. One helps us to to make decisions fast and be able to make let you know whether we're, we're interested or is not a fit for us even quicker because we also understand that the fundraising journey is a really long one and we, we don't want we don't want to be a drag on your resources as well. Got it. Um, amazing. That's that's really good. Uh, so if, if a founder isn't raising right now, they can still email you. And how would they best frame it? They would just say, hey, we're not raising yet, but would love some advice. Is that the famous advice on asking for advice? Or what's the best way of um, reaching out to you and building the relationship with you early on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think um, a clear ask is very helpful because time is time. Of course, is very limited. Right, I have like a lot of calls on my calendar, um, and and sometimes I open my my calendar up for people to throw things on there, and and so having some kind of call to action that like, hey, I'd love to spend that, but I have a call of someone who connected me on Twitter, and she was like, hey, I just want to discuss generally about my idea that I have. That gives me a healthy knock. Okay, I'm coming here not to review a pitch deck, not to be tactical. If you're like, hey. I love to review this strategy idea. Do you have a second? If I have a second, it's a fit for what I'm, my, my expertise is. I know where to go. The thing is, for me, is a clear call to action is helpful because I'm able to see, because I always have to talk to founders. I think it's one of my favorite parts of my job. It's one of the things that I love to do the most, talk to founders and, and, and helping them think through their ideas. Um, so having a clear call to action helps me also. Turn, I come into a call. Um, I know that for the 30 minutes or so we have together, I can be effective. I can be impactful. I can do some homework beforehand. So I'm not just wasting your time. Um, and we have to have another meeting again, post the first meeting. Got it. Uh, thanks, Giselle. I uh, really appreciate your time today. And um, uh, if there's a last chance for anybody in the audience to raise their hand. But if not, that's fine as well. Maybe if you want to reach out to Giselle uh, separately afterwards. And I also know that uh, a few members of the community that are spread across a few different time zones will be watching the recording of this and may may nice. uh, get in touch with you. So really appreciate your time um, uh, on uh, making this and uh, can't wait to release this podcast and uh, to collaborate more in the future. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. 
this means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.